All right, let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for your word tonight. And we pray that as we finish up this incredible book, inspired by the Holy Spirit, given to us by God for our learning, for our exhortation, edification, and comfort, that, Lord, tonight as we wind it up, you will just minister to us out of the Holy Writ. And, Lord, let it build us up in the faith. Let it strengthen us, Father. And we thank you, Lord, for for renewing our minds and for helping us to have such an appreciation for the power with which you launched the early church. In Jesus' name, will you breathe a prayer and say, Lord, speak to me tonight. I receive the word. Amen. Tell your neighbor, it's going to be good tonight. God bless you. All right. Well, we're in in full-blown summer, and uh, a lot of folks are on the road already. I'm about to be. Well, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to be hanging around. I'm just going to be decompressing. So anyway, let me move on. Um, We're going to do chapters 27 and 28 tonight. And last time we ended with Paul's case, ultimately turned over to Caesar because of a bungling governor named Festus, who should have set him free, but decided to play politics instead. And because he did that, then Paul was not set free, and he he was forced to appeal to Caesar. And so off to Caesar, he is going. So chapter 27 begins with Paul setting sail for Rome. And uh, there's a lot of verses in this tonight, so we're going to be reading a lot of the, just a lot of the Acts narrative, and I'm going to be commenting, as I always do, um, after a few chosen verses. But now, verse 1, it was decided that we should sail to Italy. They, uh, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan uh, regiment. Now, I just want to pull out one little thing. Notice the little pronoun, we, and that's Luke letting us know he's back in the game, that he is now, once again, um, on the boat, traveling with Paul, and so I just wanted to point that out, that the beloved physician is now on the voyage once again with him. And as I've shared with you in past meetings, um, he needed a physician. Paul was not well. His body was beaten, bruised, aching, had several afflictions. Uh, he had that thorn in the flesh, and so to have a what we would call a personal physician with him uh, had to be a great comfort to Paul. Now, Throughout the voyage, we have a second noted personality, the centurion Julius, who treats Paul with respect and deference and even becoming his protector later in the voyage. Later on in this study tonight, we're going to see Julius literally saving Paul's life. Now, verse 2, so entering a, a ship of Adramitium, we put to sea, meaning to sail along the coast of Asia. And Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. Now, here we have one more name provided by Luke, Aristarchus. I want you to keep in mind that Jesus said, Inasmuch as you've done it to the least of one of these, my brethren, you've done it to me and for me. And he also said, I was in prison and you visited me. Now, surely Dr. Luke and Aristarchus have a reward in glory for ministering to the chief of apostles in his trials and his imprisonment, for he was in prison and they stayed with him. And we're about to see Luke is sailing on a vessel with Paul that is destined for some real rocking and rolling. And I mean that in a negative way, because some of you went, all right, rock and roll. No, I'm just... Um, because this, this journey is in for some real trouble, and Luke is about to really go through it because he stayed with Paul. Now, verse 3, and the next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. And when we had put to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed over the sea, which is off Cilicia, And Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. 
There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy, and he put us on board. Now, verse 7, when we had sailed slowly many days, because they had no engines. However, the wind took you is the way you went. So they were going slowly because the breeze was light. When we had sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty off of Sinitis, y'all need to really pray for me with these names. I'm doing well so far. I'm so glad I don't live in any of these names right here. The wind not permitting us to proceed. So notice, they're stopped because of the wind. We sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmon. And passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lasea. Now, I want you to take note that we're getting little hints here in verses 4 and 7 and 8 that the winds have begun to be contrary. And this has not gone unnoticed by Paul, who began to have a spiritual check about the direction they were going in. Paul was very sensitive to the Spirit of God. And I don't know about you, but when I travel, you put me on a plane, I am praying the whole way. I do not sleep on jets. I remind God of my calling <laughs> several times, any given flight. And I am, uh, I am uh, repenting of any faint thing I think might be between me and the Lord. Now, here's Paul, and I'm sensitive to the Holy Spirit, too. I need to hear from him. But here is Paul. He's noticing the winds getting contrary, and he's about to get a spiritual check. Now, look at verse 9. Now, when much time had been spent, and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, verse 10, Men, I perceive this voyage is going to end with disaster and much loss not only of the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. Everybody say with me, that's serious. Now, he's not messing around. He's not saying you're headed for a little bit of turbulence. He's saying, I'm perceiving we're in danger of dying. And this is going to be a disastrous journey. And he's not speaking out of fear. He's speaking out of the Holy Ghost. Now, this ominous warning of Paul's is clear. Don't continue. There's great danger ahead, but nobody listens to him. Look what happened, verse 11. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. Now, here's the problem. The professional or the expert was trusted over the prayer. And isn't this, isn't this the way it often is? Uh, we trust the scientist over the praying man who's in touch with God, don't we? Let me give you an example. Darwin is given precedence over Moses in our schools. Moses wrote, God created the heavens and the earth. Darwin wrote, it happened by evolution and natural selection. Who do we trust? We trust the scientist over the prayer. Mo, uh, the scientist over the saint. And look how they winded up losing as a result. Verse 12, and because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also, if by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, opening toward the southwest and northwest, and winter there. So they decide to surge and press on. And here we see another common thing. The majority is winning the day, and they are totally wrong. Because look what it said. The majority advised, let's keep going. The minority said, you better listen to God. So everybody say with me, the majority is often wrong. I mean, haven't we seen that in America? I mean, listen, just because the majority is for something doesn't mean it's right. You can be, have a whole lot of people who are stuck on stupid. Right? You can have a whole lot of people wrong. Now, Paul, having been overruled by the experts, headed for the cabin to pray. He said, they're not listening to me. I'm going to go to the prayer closet. And thank God he was there because his prayers are going to save the entire ship. Give me a praying man any day. Give me a praying man or a woman who knows how to get a hold of God any day. Do I need to, guys, I'm breaking here. Do I need to do something? Because I'm popping a lot. Okay. All right. I tightened it. Let's see if that helped. Now, verse 13, 
When the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. Now I want you to notice again how the soft southern wind seduced them into an illusion of safety. I'm just going to grab a mic, y'all. Everybody turn to your neighbor and say, praise God. The soft southern wind seduced them into an illusion of safety. Folks, listen to me. It's always better to obey the Spirit over promising circumstances. I'm going to say that again. It's always better to obey the Spirit than trust in promising circumstances. They, they felt this soft southern wind and said, we can keep on going. But the fact of the matter was that trouble was ahead and the Spirit of God had already told. Paul had an inner GPS. The Holy Spirit. Amen? So... They, they look at this soft southern wind and they say, well, we can keep on going. And it got him into all kinds of trouble. Look at verse 14. But not long after, a tempestuous wind arose, headwind arose, called Eurachlodon, and that's a type of typhoon. So they were in a major storm. So when the ship was caught, everybody say caught. If you don't follow the Spirit of God, you're going to end up caught. And could not head into the wind... We let her drive. Now they're at the mercy of the wind. And running under the shelter of an island called Clauda, we secured the skiff with difficulty. And when they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship. And fearing lest they should run aground on the Syrtis sands, they struck sail, and so they were driven. And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, The next day they lighten the ship. Now let me just pull some adjectives out of here. Notice what happens when you don't obey the Spirit of God. You end up driven, not led. You end up exceedingly tossed, not at peace. You end up having to get rid of things because you're in so much trouble. Now notice how they went from a soft southern wind into the nightmare of a tempest-tossed and extremely dangerous sea. Turmoil and trouble are the typical consequences of disobeying the instructions of the Lord. Amen. Now, now folks, now this was written for our learning. The Holy Ghost put this in the book of Acts. And it really behooves us to just pause here for a minute and think. These people did not listen to the word of the Lord. They listened to their own flesh. And they trusted in man instead of trusting in God. And I want you to notice that it got them into all kinds of trouble. Part of learning to walk with God is trusting God when you don't see what he sees. You're getting into a relationship, for instance. And to you, the relationship looks great. That person looks great. Everything looks wonderful. But God gives you a check. God raises a flag. And God says to you, be careful. But there is nothing you see. Or, or, but then you have to decide, am I going to follow God? And am I going to listen to the Holy Ghost or am I going to go with my own fleshly desires? Or somebody offers you a business deal and that business deal looks great. You can't see anything wrong with it. But as you begin to progress into that business deal or job or whatever it might happen to be, the Holy Ghost checks you. And you go, well, I don't understand it because it looks good to me. It seems good to me. But the Holy Ghost is giving you a check because he sees something you don't see. You know, I use my GPS all the time. I would be in Canada right now without a GPS. I need a GPS to get me home these days. Now, one thing I've noticed, that GPS will tell me that I need to turn down a certain street instead of going the way that I usually go. And this has happened to me several times. And I go, why should I go down that street? Because I'm going to go the way I always go. But see, that GPS is up in the sky looking down and sees what I don't see. And there have been times I greatly regretted. I didn't take the street and I kept on going. And I ended up totally stuck, exceedingly tempest-tossed, driven, (laughs) stuck on I-35. So what did the GPS know? The GPS saw what I didn't see. It's the same with the Holy Ghost. See, Paul had that inner GPS, the Holy Spirit, who saw the whole world, who saw the whole ocean, and said, you better not go because I'm seeing a weather pattern coming your way that you don't see. There's great trouble ahead, so don't 
continue in this journey, but they did. So a real lesson here for us. Everybody say, trust God. Always. Turmoil and trouble are the typical consequences of disobeying the instructions of the Lord. Verse 19. On the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. Now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. Now they are at the point of total desperation. And it must have been terrible, folks. Stop and think about it. The ship was rocking to and fro violently. The wind was screaming, and it tore at everyone on deck, and it was even worse down below. Can you imagine being down below? There was terror amongst the prisoners, because they were carrying a bunch of prisoners to Rome. And to top it all off, the heavenly light of the stars was obscured by the storm. Deep darkness covered them all. But there was a man of God on board who had been in prayer. Hallelujah. All it takes is one man, one woman in touch with God to turn the tables. Verse 21, after long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Man, you should have listened to me. And not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. Now, I really do believe, knowing the Apostle Paul and the incredible character that he possessed, this was not a cheap, I told you so. But it was no doubt spoken by Paul so that they would now listen to him. Because he's about to take over. That is, God in him is about to take over and guide them the rest of the way to safety. For God had spoken to him. Verse 22. Now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve. I just got Holy Ghost bumps right there. Because where was Paul? Everybody else in turmoil, everybody else in fear, but where was he? He was in prayer and he was fasting. And suddenly an angel was sent by God and stood next to him and said in verse 24, Don't be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Now, this was not a trite, hey, you know, have faith in God. But a word given him directly by an angel. He had a word directly from God. And I got a question for you. Why did God save everybody on the ship? They were all sinners. They were prisoners. There was very few, if any, Christians. I mean, Luke was, and uh, the, the people following, traveling with Paul were. But the vast majority of people on the ship were not believers. So why did God save them? I'm going to tell you why. I believe because God... Uh, God touched them and saved them because of the prayers of Paul. Paul prayed, Lord, don't let any of them be lost. Be because of the prayers of one man, God saved the whole ship. And that's why I believe let one person in a family get saved. Just one. That's what happened to my family. The, the black sheep of the family, me, I got saved. Freaked everybody out. Nobody thought it was real, but God saved the black sheep of the family. And one by one, they ended up getting saved. One by one, they came to Christ. I got the shock of my life this week. I was with my middle sister. Man, I hope she's not watching. Well, I'm going to go ahead and tell on you. I was with my middle sister, and we were having dinner with my little mother, who got saved years ago where I was preaching in a church. My sister said, Jeff, I thought you might want to know, I've been going to church lately. Now, now, she's never gone to church. And how long ago did I get saved? 45 years ago? Yeah, somewhere around there. And I've been praying. Now, I haven't prayed every day, but I have covered them in so many prayers. And all of a sudden, she just drops on me. I've been going to church lately. I said, hang on, June. The room is spinning. I said, what possessed you to go to church? She said, well, I just met some people that were going to church, and I started going to church with them, and now I'm going to church, and I go almost every Sunday. Listen, let one person in a family get saved, and the rest of the family is in big trouble. The devil in that family is in big trouble because one person praying is how God establishes a beachhead. So here's this ship of over 200 people, and the prayers of one man saves them all. 
Verse 25, Paul says, Therefore take heart, men, for I believe, God, that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. Now watch with me. There wasn't a man on board that ship that knew where they were. They had been tossed to and fro by a violent typhoon-like wind. But the angel that spoke to Paul knew exactly where they were, the exact latitude and longitude. He knew exactly where they were. You must land. You will land on a certain island. The angel saw it. He knew where they were going. The angel knew where the ship was headed, though it was storm-tossed. And God tonight knows where you're headed. Though now you may feel like everything is out of control in your life, and I don't know where you are tonight. Maybe everything is peaceful and good. But maybe you're going through a real trial. And maybe you're even at the place where you're wondering, where in the world am I going to land in life? Listen, you may not know, but God knows. And he sees the place. And he's going to guide you safely there. Even though the storm rages, God is going to get you there. The psalmist David wrote, When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, you knew my path. Amen. Now, verse 27, when the 14th night had come, wow, two weeks of this, as we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors sensed they were drawing near some land, and they took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. And when they had gone a little farther, they took soundings again and found it to be 15 fathoms. So they're getting closer and closer to land. Then fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. The waves were still beating on that ship. The reef uh, that they were now surrounded by could yet sink them. They needed daylight. How many of you have ever been in a trial where you had to say, Oh God, give me daylight. How often I have personally prayed, I'm going to tell you, for day to come in the middle of a trial. Lord, I need to see things. I need to know where you're taking me. I need to know how this is all going to work out. Lord, give me some direction. Give me a word. Just one word from God can carry you from night to day. We all need the pardoning of the clouds in our trials that we might see clearly. And God is faithful. Everybody say, God is faithful. To carry us again into the day. Maybe tonight you don't have a job. Maybe tonight your marriage is in trouble. Maybe tonight your home seems to have just lost all control. Let me tell you, God is going to part the clouds and you're going to have daytime again. Amen. Verse 30. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they had let down the skiff into the sea, under pretense of putting out anchors from the prow. So you got an escape happening here. The crew is trying to escape. They're letting the lifeboat down. And Paul saw it. Now Paul's in charge now by the Holy Ghost. And Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men, the crew, stays in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff, the lifeboat, and they let it fall off, and the lifeboat began to drift away. Paul knew that if the crew escaped, they would never make it to shore. They needed every able-bodied man. So he immediately spoke up, stop them or you'll die. So get, get, get this now. Paul tells them, let the lifeboat go. He's not anymore leaning at all on the arm of flesh. He said, we don't need a lifeboat. God's with us. So they cut the ropes, and this crew is watching the lifeboat drift away. And as the day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food, saying, Today's the 14th day. You have waited. Folks, everybody say two weeks without food. Now, can you say with me, that's a trial? I'm in a storm. I'm in fear of my life. I'm not sleeping day or night, and I'm not eating anything. Therefore, I urge you to take nourishment, for this is for, for your survival, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. Now, my guess is Paul likely suggested eating so to get their minds off the ugly event that had just transpired. They had cut the ropes of the lifeboat, and it was drifting away, and they're all watching it drift away. Paul said the only thing that's going to get the, these men's mind off of what's happening is food. So he said, let's eat. And that was a great distraction. And then he said, you're all safe. And those were the words he comforted them with. 
I'm amazed at this man. This Apostle Paul, never rattled, never shaken, so mature in God. Verse 35, when he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Now, this is amazing. After going through two weeks of hell and back, Paul thanks God in front of them, all for a simple piece of bread. It's when we display our faith, folks, in a great trial, the lost take notice. I'm going to say that again. It's when we display our faith in a great trial, the lost take notice. Because they're still in the ship. They're not on land yet. They still don't know how it's all going to go down. But he's saying, thank you, God, for this bread. Here's all these prisoners watching. Here's this crew watching. Here's all these lost people watching. And Paul just lifts up the bread like Jesus always did. He took it. He blessed it. He broke it. And he gave it. When it was day, they didn't recognize the land. But they observed a bay with a beach onto which they planned to run the ship if possible. And they let go the anchors and left them in the sea. Meanwhile, loosing the rudder ropes and they hoisted the mainsail to the wind. And the wind began to drive them towards the shore. But striking a place where two seas met. So you got two currents coming at them from two different directions. They ran the ship aground. And they began to watch their ship be completely destroyed. The prow stuck fast and remained immovable. So the front of the ship is dug into the sand. You got two currents slamming up against the ship. And the ship begins to be broken to pieces by the violence of the waves. You know what they're seeing? There goes our way out. Bye-bye. There goes our transportation. The ship is being destroyed in front of them. But everybody say, God's in charge. When you lose your transportation, he's going to get you there anyway. Now the soldiers began to talk, verse 42. They said, we better kill these prisoners. They're all going to escape. And we will be in deep trouble when we get to Rome. If we get to Rome, we better kill these prisoners. But the centurion, wanting to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land. Now remember at the beginning of this message, I mentioned the centurion Julius. Here he is, and he's used of God to save Paul's life. And look at verse 44. The rest, they were grabbing boards. They were grabbing parts of the ship, anything that floated, and holding on to it as the waves carried them to the shore. And so it was, they all escaped safely to land. And folks, we're about to find out, it was freezing cold. So they are soaked in salt water. They're holding on to boards and whatever they can grab to, to help them float. They're being pushed to shore by a freezing cold wind in freezing cold water. Not a good day at the office. But they all made it safely, safely to land, just as the angel had promised Paul. Now, chapter 28 begins with the name of the island they had landed on. Let's read chapter 28, verse 1. When they had escaped, they then found out that the island was called Malta. And the natives showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. So, bless God, on top of everything else, it's raining. Now, Malta meant refuge. And it was well known to sailors trading up and down the Mediterranean. Where they landed was a well-known place. It was inhabited by Phoenician settlers with, with a Phoenician dialect. And it was under the jurisdiction of Rome. The islanders showed great kindness to the 276 freezing castaways by building a fire. Now look at verse 3. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire... A viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. Now that gives me the creeps just reading it. Because when the Bible says viper, it's talking about a poisonous snake. Now, I, I was a, a critter kid. I, I grew up, I learned all my reptiles, all my animals, all of my plants and, and everything around me. I learned the names. I was just a curious little kid. And, and I learned my snakes. I learned them real well. I know there's four poisonous ones in Texas. Copperhead, water moccasin, rattlesnake, coral snake. Those are your four. 
The coral snake has the, well, I don't want to give you a snake lesson. I'm not going to give you a reptile lesson, but I will say this. I'll say this. Uh, three of them are vipers, and one of them is not. The coral snake is not a viper. The coral snake is of the cobra family. The other three are vipers. When they go to strike, the fangs drop down, and they strike you. They have much longer fangs than the coral snake. So I know of three vipers, the copperhead, moccasin, rattlesnake. So this was a viper that when he, when he went to bite, the fangs dropped down. And, and there's a little saying in snake world, when you begin to read about poisonous snakes, there are snakes called two-steppers. A two-stepper means he's so poisonous, so venomous, so lethal, that you get bitten, you, you take two steps and you die. Now that's a little bit of embellishment, but it, it gets the point across that there are certain snakes that, that when one of them bites you, you don't have long on this planet. This was one of those. This was a viper, a bad boy. And here Paul, he's picked up a bunch of sticks doing a good deed. He's carrying it to the fire. He goes to throw it in the fire, and the snake, no doubt, sees the fire and fastens himself to Paul's hand. Now, i got to point out something first because... It's worth pointing out. I noticed first that rather than sitting around letting the islanders do all the work, Paul immediately made himself useful by gathering firewood. So he's out doing a good deed. He's trying to help. But in the middle of his good deed, a venomous snake emerges from the sticks and fastens on his hand. Now, I've, I had to think as I read this today, it's often while you're in the midst of blessing others that Satan strikes in an attempt to take you down. Some of my worst attacks that I've experienced from the serpent, the devil, has been when I was in the middle of the work of the Lord. Because, see, he doesn't like you doing good deeds. And here's Paul. Paul's about to transform this entire island. I'm telling you, you're about to see it. He's about to transform the entire island. The devil knows it. So the devil, I think, was perhaps using a snake, wanted to take him out. But even if not, this is, a, this is a real type of what happens to you and to me. When we're about to make a real impact for Jesus, that's when the enemy strikes and latches on to you and tries to inject venom of one kind or another into your life. Bitterness, fear, lust, hatred, something. A venomous serpentine bite from the devil himself. Look at verse 4. When the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, oh boy, that, that's bad. That, that dude's not even letting go. They said to one another, uh-oh, no doubt this man is a murderer whom, though he has escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow him to live. In other words, karma is what they were thinking. Immediately, as people typically do, the islanders attributed this frightening event to Paul having done wrong, and now fate was administering justice. Now let me talk to you for a minute. We need to be very, very careful. When we watch people, Christians, go through things that seem really rough, it's a real temptation to look at that. Some friend, some church member, somebody we read about, some believer, going through just a really bad trial that we don't say to ourselves, what did they do? What did they do that God has brought this on them? See, that's what Job's three friends did, so-called friends. I mean, you read the book of Job, all they did, all those three friends did for most of the book is say, Job, fess up. What did you do? What did you do? That this has all come upon you. What did you do? And, and in the end of the book, God corrects those friends that he didn't do anything. You were wrong. You advised him wrong. It's a real temptation for us to attribute somebody's trials to something they did wrong. They could be going through a trial for what they did right. And Paul didn't do anything wrong. Paul was as innocent as the day is long. So it was very wrong for these islanders to assume he had done wrong. When somebody's going through a great trial, they don't need to hear us say, what did you do wrong? They need to hear us say, how can I pray for you? I'm here for you. 
I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to pray with you till you come through this because I'm a friend and not a foe. When everybody else walks out, we need to walk in. Amen? Paul knew that God had called him to Rome. And no power in hell or snake on earth was going to thwart God's plan. And you got to remember the words of Jesus because Paul just shook it off. Everybody say shake it off. There's some things you needed to shake off. Amen. When the devil tries biting you, you get offended or something like that. There, there's some offenses we just need to shake off. So anyway, he just shook it off and it fell into the fire and it died. And I remember the words of Jesus here. He said, these signs will follow those who believe. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. So it was for Paul, the snake was powerless. And let me show you the difference between what happened to him and people in those weird, way out, nutty churches who bring rattlesnakes into the service and grab them and play with them. <laughs> Let me tell you the difference. Not that you need to know, but just so you'll know. You ever walk into a church, somebody pulls out a rattlesnake, look for the nearest exit door and run like you've never run in your life. But let me tell you the difference. Those people that bring those snakes in there, they're tempting God. Jesus said, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. You, Jesus didn't say, nothing can hurt you, so go ahead and expose yourself stupidly to danger. The difference is, Paul had nothing to do with this. He was innocent, and the snake struck him. But like I've told you often in this series, until your work is done, you are invincible. And so Paul couldn't be taken out because he hadn't been gone to Rome yet. And God had said, you're going to go to Rome, Paul. So he could not be taken out. The snake was powerless. But that's the difference. Don't ever tempt the Lord. Don't go find poison and drink it. I will be doing your funeral. <laughs> Amen? Now, verse 5. He shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. However, they were expecting that he would swell up or suddenly fall down dead. That makes me think it was a two-stepper. But after they had looked for a long time and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said, he's a god. Again, here's the typical fickleness of man. Paul swings in their minds from a murderer one minute, worthy of death, to a god the next minute. That's just the way people are. Now, verse 7, in that region, there was an estate of the leading citizen of the island whose name was Publius. That was the leader of the pack, the leader of the tribe, who received us and entertained us courteously for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and dysentery. Now, Paul went in to him and prayed and laid his hands on him and healed him. Now, revival is about to move throughout this island. So when this was done, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came. And what happened, everybody? Read it with me. And were healed. They also honored us in many ways. And when we departed, they provided such things as were necessary. I, I'm reminded of Jesus here. It says of Jesus, he went about everywhere doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil is this not what we see the great apostle Paul doing on this island? He starts out by gathering sticks. He ends it by bringing a revival and healing all the sick. So revival begins with good works. Revival begins small and ends up big. Paul left blessing everywhere he went in this island. The entire three, men, three months they were on the island, he brought healing, salvation, hope, and goodwill but on to Rome, he must go. And they were there three months. Look at this, verse 11. After three months, we sailed in an Alexandrian ship whose figurehead was the twin brothers which had wintered at the island. And landing at Syracuse, we stayed three days. From there, we circled around and reached Regium. And from after one day, the south wind blew. And the next day, we came to Puteoli, where we found brethren and were invited to stay with them seven days. And so we went toward Rome. And from there, when the brethren heard about us, they came to meet us as far as Appii Forum and Three Inns. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. Now, when we came to Rome, everybody say, God got him there. Because this was the apex of Paul's ministry now. 
This is the highlight, the zenith, where God had told him he would go when he was first called. He finally lands at Rome. When we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard. But Paul was treated differently. He was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Now, as a Roman citizen, Paul was given preferential treatment by being placed under light house arrest. By being lightly chained to a Roman soldier, he would be there two years. And a succession of these Roman soldiers that he was chained to would come and go for the next two years. And every one of those soldiers that was chained to Paul, don't you know, they were witness to that very day. And can you imagine the blessing? How many of them were praying, hey, man, I'm praying for a, I'm praying for a shift change here. Because can you imagine being lost as a goose in a hailstorm and being chained to Paul for weeks on end? Paul probably looked right at them and said, so good to have you. Since we're going to be real close roommates, let me talk to you about Jesus. Amen? <laughs> Verse 17. And it came to pass after three days that Paul called the leaders of the Jews together, as was his wont. So when they had come together, he said to them, Men and brethren, though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, who, when they had examined me, wanted to let me go, because there was no cause for putting me to death. But when the Jews spoke against it, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I had anything of which to accuse my nation, for this reason, therefore, I have called for you to see you and to speak with you, because for the hope of Israel, I am bound with this chain. So as was his habit, Paul has called for his own countrymen, the Jews, to explain his plight. Now look at verse 21 of their response to him. They, the Jews, said to him, hey, we didn't receive letters from Judea concerning you, and none of the brethren who came reported or have spoken any evil of you. But we desire to hear from you what you think. For concerning this sect, the sect being Christians, we know it's spoken against everywhere. Verse 23, so when they had appointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. This man, Paul, could not stop talking about Jesus. And some were persuaded by the things which were spoken, but some disbelieved. And so when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul had said one word. Now, folks, pay real close attention because what Paul is about to say is huge. He's quoting Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 to 10. You want to jot that down in your Bible because he's speaking by the Spirit of God, a prophetic word, not only over these Jews, but over the whole nation. Paul said to them as they walked out, the Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, Hearing you will hear and will not understand. Seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing. Their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. That passage, those passages, Isaiah 6, 9, and 10, is quoted seven times in the Bible. Once in the Old Testament by Isaiah, who delivered it originally, and six times in the New Testament. Twice by Jesus himself during his ministry when he was not received. And this last time by Paul. Now, why is this so huge? Because he has just spoken judgment over the nation of Israel. This passage is all about what we call in theology judicial blindness. Judicial blindness is something that God does when a person or a city 
or a nation or a world rejects him. It is when, over and over again, grace has been extended and the grace has been refused. God finally says, all right, I'm going to blind you. So that even when the truth comes to you, you will not see it. I think of Romans 1. Three times, Paul the Apostle wrote in Romans 1, God turned them over. God turned them over. God gave them up. What is that about? Judicial blindness. In Romans 11, Paul is talking all about this judicial blindness and how the Jew has been blind to the gospel overwhelmingly all these centuries. Have you ever tried witnessing to a Jew? I love the Jewish people. But they do not turn to Christ in mass because the, the Jewish people are still to this day under judicial blindness that began here in what we just read. First, the Jerusalem Jews rejected the testimony of Paul about Jesus. And now the Roman Jews have rejected the Lord of glory in the same way. It was the final straw. Paul felt led by the Holy Spirit to call down God's judicial wrath upon the Hebrew people. This is serious. The Holy Spirit pronounced doom over the nation and the transfer of spiritual blessing to the Gentiles. God went from the Jews to the Gentiles and you and I became the recipients of the Jews rejecting Jesus. Romans 11 talks all about how we were grafted into the vine. We were grafted in. We were not born a part of the vine like the Jewish people, but we were grafted into the vine by grace. And God turned to the Gentiles because the Jews rejected Jesus. Judicial blindness. Now let me just go a little further and tell you, I believe America to a level is right now under judicial blindness. There is not a nation in the history of the world that has sinned against greater light than America. Minus Israel. Israel sinned against the greatest light. But apart from Israel, there's no nation in the history of the world that has sinned against greater light than America. America was, was birthed in revival, birthed in the Great Awakening, saw revival after revival after revival shake it from shore to shore, from coast to coast. Yet now look at our culture. We have, we have rejected Christ. We have kicked him out of our schools. We have kicked him out of our courts. We have kicked him out of the public arena. We have, we have, we have turned against him. We have embraced perversion. We have embraced sin. We have, we have embraced everything the Bible. We have embraced a value system that is totally unbiblical. And I believe to a level, America is under judicial blindness. Now, you're saying, well, Jeff, you're saying God can't move? No, God can move, and I'm praying that God does move. But right now, I see a level of judicial blindness on America. I know that's heavy, but I've got to be truthful with you. Look at verse 28. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles... And everybody read the next words with me. They will hear it. Tell your neighbor, I heard it. Because all of us in here are Gentiles, most of us. Now, and when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute among themselves. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. Paul's hired house in Rome became the headquarters of world evangelism. He could not go, but others could come to him, and people flocked to him. He led people to Christ those two years, imprisoned in Rome, inspired others to carry the gospel to the world, and even won members of Caesar's own household to the Lord. And this is now where Luke puts down his pen. He leaves us with Paul living victoriously despite his chains, not looking back, but looking forward. Now let me close with one little thing for the record. You say, well, what happened to Paul after that? Well, we know that he was released from this imprisonment after two years. 
We know that he preached for another few years, did a couple more uh, missionary outreaches. He was finally arrested again, and he was executed around 67 A.D., three years before the destruction of Jerusalem, which he knew was coming because he had spoken this word of judicial blindness over them. Jesus had said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you like a hand gathers her chicks, but now you're really doomed. And it came to pass. So three years after the death of this great man and the homegoing of Paul, Jerusalem fell, the Jews were scattered to the four corners of the world, and were only regathered again in 1948 when Israel became a nation again. And there you have it. Let's stand together, can we? Amen. How many of you are glad you came tonight? And how many of you are glad that you're not under judicial blindness? And do you believe that God can still move in America? I do. I do. And I'm, and I'm praying for that. So let's just worship the Lord right now. Father, we thank you for the witness and the testimony of this incredible man of God who you sovereignly saved and raised up. Thank you, Lord, for the story of not only... Paul the Apostle, but Simon Peter, the early church, God on the loose in the first century, all that you did in birthing the church of Jesus Christ, all of the activity of the Holy Spirit, the ministry of angels, the incredible miracles and signs and wonders that were done in the early church, setting the stage for the church to evangelize the world. Thank you, that was the beginning. And now we're at the end. And Lord, help us to see such mighty signs and great outreach and to reach our world for Jesus Christ. Can we just lift our hands to the Lord and say, Lord, use me in these last days like you used them in the former days. Thank you, Lord Jesus.